You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, your Bible or your Bible app, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible this morning. On those tables in the back of the room, you will find some hardback Bibles. Grab one of those now or on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you with no strings attached. We're happy to give that to you this morning. And if you don't know your way around the Bible that well, the passage that we're studying today will be on the screen so you can follow along with us. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for His people. So listen carefully to these God's words. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. For several weeks now, we have been in this letter of the New Testament known as the letter of Ephesians. It's a letter about identity formation. Really, it answers this question that so many in our world are asking, who am I? Who am I? It's all about identity formation. And we're now in the second main part of the letter. So chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians focus largely on theology, and chapters 4 to 6 are much more practical in nature. So we could say it like this, the first half of the book is about our identity, who we are, our new identity in Christ. The second half of the letter is about our responsibilities, how we live out this new identity. We're going to be learning today and in the weeks ahead just how practical Christianity really is. In the weeks ahead, Paul, the writer of this letter, will talk to us about sex, alcohol intake, gender roles, the parent-child relationship, spiritual warfare, all sorts of practical subjects. And really, the thread that ties all of these subjects together is this. Christians are to live remarkably different lives, different from the world and different from our pre-conversion past. That's what Paul talks about here at the very beginning of our passage today, which I just want to read and summarize by way of introduction. Backing up to verse 17, Paul talks about the new self. Here's what he says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as unbelievers do, 
in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is teaching us that there is a definitive change, a definitive change when we are converted. We now have a new identity in Christ and we live out this new identity. Now look at a couple of key phrases he uses here. Verse 20, it's not the way you learned Christ. This unique expression shows us that it's more than learning the content about Christ. Sure, that's involved in you becoming a Christian. You learn the content about Christ, but even greater, you have a personal relationship with Christ. You now belong to Him. He has redeemed you. He has set you free from your past and all that enslaved you before. You belong to Him and you now walk with Him. And that walk involves putting off the old self and putting on the new. Paul uses this analogy, it's implied here, that our old life and all the corrupt practices that characterize that old life, they're like, it's like dirty clothing that needs to be stripped off and left behind. My parents live in Gulf Shores, Alabama, and they live very close to a beach that is a great, great fishing spot. If you go in the right time of the year, late fall, you can catch redfish right off the beach, big like 20, 30 pound redfish. Several years ago, my dad and my brothers and I were there late fall. One night it was just as the sun was going down and the redfish came in. They came in, but not quite close enough to reach them from the beach. We had to wade through some pretty deep water to get to a sandbar. And everybody who was fishing from that sandbar, they were just catching redfish after redfish after redfish. It was a glorious thing if you're a fisherman. So we wanted to get to that sandbar, so here's what we did. We cut up all the mullet we had, and we crammed it all into our pockets. I'm talking big mullet heads, brains, dangling blood, dripping out. Think about that when you're having lunch later today. You're welcome. And we just crammed it into our pockets because we wanted to get to that sandbar and just be able to stand there and catch fish after fish. Looking back, it was a shark attack waiting to happen. I probably should have wound up on the Discovery Channel and like a Shark Week show. But by God's grace, we made it to the sandbar and we caught redfish until we couldn't catch them anymore. It was a great night. But you know what didn't survive the night? Those jeans. They were unsalvageable. So incredibly filthy, there was only one thing to do. Strip them off and throw them away. That is your old life and mine. Unsalvageable. Only one thing to do. Strip it off. 
Leave it in the past. Put on the new self. This new identity that we have in Jesus Christ and this new behavior that comes along with that. Put on the new self, Paul says. This new identity is something that you have, believer. You possess it, but now you must live it out. It's very similar to what Paul has been teaching us about the unity of the church. Unity is something that Jesus has created. It's a theological reality. It's real. And yet we are called to maintain it. To maintain the unity he's created. You have this new identity in Christ. It's real. And you are called to live it out. The way we do that, the way we develop in this new identity, is by allowing the Holy Spirit who lives within us to guide us to God's Word so that we're renewed in the way we think, in our minds, our, our decision-making changes, our behavior changes. We live out this new identity. You see, the Christian life is a journey. It's a journey of becoming who we are. Becoming who we are. Growing as children of God. Putting on this new self. Now, all of that, that's just the intro, okay? That's the appetizer. I wasn't here last week. I took the week off from at least being here, so you've got to give me a few extra minutes today. That's the intro, the appetizer. Now we're ready for the meat of the day. In the rest of chapter 4, Paul is going to give us five tangible expressions of this new identity. Five tangible expressions. The person who has put on the new self, what does he look like? How does she live? Paul will give us five expressions of this new identity. First, he or she speaks truth. The person who has put on the new self speaks truth. Now before I read this first verse here, I want to tell you to watch for three things that you're going to find in all five of these expressions. First, you're going to notice that all of them have to do with our relationships with one another. Life in community. The negative things that Paul will talk about in this passage, they are negative things that destroy human harmony. So watch for that. They have to do with our relationships. Also, watch for both a negative and a positive. Paul is going to give us a negative prohibition, and he's going to follow it with some sort of a positive command. So don't do that. Instead, do this. Watch for that. And then also he's going to give us a reason. Why? Why are we to behave this way? You'll see all of these here. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. So we have the negative prohibition first. Put away falsehood. And then we have the positive command. Speak the truth. Christians are people who follow the Lord Jesus, right? And Jesus is truth. The way, the truth, the life. Therefore, we are to be characterized by truth. We are truthful people. We're truthful people because we are members of one another. See, in the church, in this group here, we're more than neighbors. We're called to love our neighbor, but here we're closer than neighbors. We're brothers and sisters. We're family. We're members of the one body. We live life together, and life together involves trust. See, fellowship 
is built on trust, right? Isn't that true in life? Fellowship is built on trust and trust is built on truth. We're truthful with one another. But the Bible also teaches us that we must be thoughtful with the way we relay truth. See, if one error is hiding the truth, if that's one error, another error is just hitting people with our truth. I have the truth in this situation, and it is my Christian duty to whack you with it. Right? We've all met people like that. Don't forget that the Bible not only teaches us what to say, truth, but how to say it thoughtfully. Thoughtfully. So we're truthful people and we're thoughtful people. I often say to my boys, Aiden and Cullen, that there are two things that I despise probably more than anything else. And those two things are laziness and lying. Laziness because it wastes the gifts God has given us. And lying because it breaks the relationships God has given us. Fellowship, life together, it's built on trust. And trust is built on truth. So we are truthful people. That's the first mark of the person who has put on the new self. Secondly, he or she controls anger. Controls anger. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now this one is really interesting because the negative and the positive, remember I told you in each of these you're going to see a negative prohibition and a positive command. Well, in this one, the negative and the positive are combined into one short and somewhat surprising statement. Be angry, that's the positive. Be angry and do not sin, there's the negative. Paul permits anger, and then he immediately puts a limit on it. He permits it, and then he limits it. He's teaching us that anger itself is not necessarily sinful. Anger itself is not necessarily sinful. We know that because Jesus himself was angry. Probably the best known example of this is John 11. In John 11, Jesus goes to the home of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus, his friend, has died. And when Jesus arrives on the scene and he sees Lazarus' family, John, the writer of the gospel, tells us that Jesus was deeply moved by this and greatly troubled. Deeply moved and greatly troubled. Now, in the Greek text, it's just two words that are used there. The first word is used several other times in John's gospel, and it always has connotations of anger. The second word is used of water that has been stirred up. So the picture we have of Jesus, Jesus as he's there at his friend's tomb is Jesus is shaking with rage. He's angry. He's angry at death. See, there are times when we should be angry. We should be angry, not apathetic, angry at death and evil in our world. But the Bible also teaches us that there are many times where we should be slow to anger. And that anger often leads us to sin. So we should deal with our anger swiftly. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
Now it's doubtful that when Paul wrote this, it's doubtful that he intended us to interpret literally here. So it's not the case, for example, that if you happen to live in Alaska in the summertime, you have longer to hold that grudge, okay? It's not the point. The point is, however, that we should deal swiftly with our anger. Paul is warning us about letting our anger grow. He wants us to understand how dangerous that can be. That anger is a combustible substance. And it can very quickly grow from the kindling to the fire that burns down the forest and the city and all who reside there. So we must deal with our anger anger swiftly and biblically. Biblically. Now how do we do that? How do we do that? If you're angry with some situation in your life or with some person in your life, how do you deal with that anger biblically? How do you deal with what you feel? Well, there are certain things we sometimes do. We sometimes suppress our feelings, suppress our anger, conceal, don't feel, right? Other times we just spew, we erupt like a volcano, erupt all over everyone in our lives, neither is biblical. Neither will bring healing to the situation. We shouldn't suppress our anger. We shouldn't spew our anger. We should speak our anger to God. We should pray it. Take your anger to the throne of God. We see this time and time again in the book of Psalms. The Psalms give us permission to take exactly what we're feeling and say it to God. Take it to His throne. Take your anger there and leave it there. Pour out exactly how you're feeling there in the presence of God. Process those emotions in His presence. And eventually, leave your anger there, trusting Him to bring justice. That's how we deal with our anger Biblically, And what happens when we don't? Well, Paul tells us, when we don't deal with our anger biblically, we give an opportunity to the devil. Now that's serious talk, isn't it? When we don't deal with our anger biblically, when we harbor anger, we lower the drawbridge, allowing the enemy to invade the castle. Allowing the devil, to come into the community of faith. Distracting us from the mission. Causing division in our midst. That's the seriousness of this. Paul is trying to teach us that perpetually angry people are a magnet for the demonic. Helmut Tielicke was a German theologian. And in some of his writings, he talks about how the demonic always seeks to remain anonymous. Demonic forces always seek to remain anonymous. They don't want you to know it's them, right? Tielicke says if there's one thing we know for certain about the devil, if there's one thing we know for certain about him, it's this. He never hands you his visiting card. Never hands you his visiting card. But here's what we can know. We can know how the devil attacks. We can know how he gains a foothold. 
One of the things he uses is anger that has been harbored, that's festering, that hasn't been dealt with biblically. So a second mark of the person who has put on the new self is controlling anger, dealing with our anger biblically and swiftly. Third, he or she works hard. The person who has put on the new self works hard. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The negative, no longer steal. It's one of the Ten Commandments we're learning in our New City Catechism, right? For kids. But Paul isn't content to leave it there. No longer steal, but rather be known as a person who labors, who works hard. And what type of work? Honest work. Honest work with your own hands. Christians are to be known as hard-working, honest workers, honest laborers. Now, let me say this. I realize, fully realize, that the workplace... These days, the workplace is a complicated place. If you're out there in the secular workforce, I get it. You've got it way harder than I do. You've got it way harder than I do. The issues that you're facing, I got an email just this week from one of our gospel partners asking for guidance because his company is uh, requiring him to go to gender identity training. We hear more and more stories about that sort of thing, right? Many of you are living in that world right now. I'm going to come back to that subject in the bonus episode that I've promised you at the end of this series. But this morning, let me just say this. Remember that it is good to work. It's good to work. And as Christians, we are called to live and to work in the world without becoming of the world, right? In the world without becoming of the world. But there are two aspects of this. The first is that we must maintain our Christian identity as we work. The second is that we must not expect the world to look and behave like us. We must not expect the world to look and behave like us. In other words, we should expect... Every company, because every company will have some level of worldliness to it, every company, we should expect them to have some sort of anti-Christian stance on gender, sexuality, whatever the subject might be. We cannot expect the world to look and act, believe like us. The question then, for those of you who are out there living and working in the world, the question is this. How can I, like Daniel and his exile friends, how can I be a faithful presence while living and working in Babylon? That's your question. Will this company allow me to maintain my Christian identity, even if there are many things about this company that I cannot agree with? How can I, like Daniel... And his exile friends be a faithful presence while living and working in Babylon. We'll come back to that. But in this text, look at this. Paul not only calls us to be hard workers, he tells us why we work. And it's not what we would expect to find. We tend to think we work so that we can provide for our families, provide for ourselves. And those are noble things. There's nothing in the world wrong with that. But it's not what Paul points to here. He says we work 
so that we can have something to share with anyone in need. See, really, there are only three ways to live when it comes to your money and your work. Only three ways to live. You can steal to get, you can work to get, or you can work to get in order to give. The third way is the Christian way. The third way is the way that characterized the person who has put on the new self. Generosity. That's the third mark. Fourth, he or she encourages others. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The negative prohibition, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. The word for corrupting here is sometimes used to refer to rotten fish or rotten fruit. Rotten speech is speech that is dishonest, unkind, vulgar. Replace that, Paul says, with the type of speech that builds others up. It's not destructive, it's edifying. It builds others up, it encourages, it gives grace to those who hear it. And then he tells us why. Because when we are characterized by this corrupting talk, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So you might think, you might think that by using those hurtful words, you're getting back at that person that hurts you. But what you're really doing is you're grieving God. God the Spirit who dwells within you. You might think that you're getting back at that person, hurting that person, but you're really hurting God. You're not just breaking His law. You're breaking His heart. We are to be known as an encouraging community. And that brings us to the very last mark in this passage, at least. He or she forgives others. The person who has put on the new self forgives others. Look at how Paul concludes. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here the negative is all of these attitudes and actions are very similar. They were to put away. They have no place in our life. Bitterness, that refusal to be reconciled. Wrath and anger, hot-headedness, anger that leads to sin, clamor and slander, the inability to control our tongues, the desire to be loud so that we can speak evil of others, malice, planning how we're going to hurt other people. Paul says, put all of that away. Put it away. And instead... Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and forgiving. Now, what does it mean to forgive someone? What does it mean to forgive? The verb, to forgive, literally means to cancel a debt or to pardon 
an offense. So simply stated, to forgive means that we refuse to retrieve an offense. We will not retrieve an offense, meaning we will not bring it up with others. We will not bring it up with the offender. We won't even bring it up in our own thinking. We will not retrieve the offense. Why not? Because we've left it at the throne of God, remember? We've prayed our anger. We've processed those emotions in the presence of God. And we've left our anger there. Trusting Him to bring justice. Then, and only then, are we ready to speak truth to the offender and express forgiveness. So these are the three steps. Pray the anger. Speak truth to the offender. What you did hurt me. And then express forgiveness. I forgive you. I will not retrieve this offense. I will not bring it up again. I forgive you. Now listen carefully. This is important. Believers, we are called to do this no matter what the offender does. We are called to pray our anger, speak the truth, express forgiveness regardless of how the offender responds. That's our calling. That's our part. Now, this does not mean, however, it does not mean that the relationship with that person automatically goes back to the exact same way that it was before. That will require repentance. Let's say, for example, that I have a friend and I lend my friend my car and then he gets drunk and he drives my car and he crashes it into a tree. Now, if that happens, I'm going to be angry. And I'm going to need to take my anger and process it in the presence of God. Pray it. And that might take a while. But then eventually, I'm going to need to go to my friend and speak truth in love. I'm going to need to say something like, What were you thinking? I let you borrow my car and you, you wrecked it. You've cost me a lot of money. And you know what? You could have cost someone their life. I speak the truth. But then I must also express forgiveness. Buddy, you're still my friend. I'm glad you're okay. And I forgive you. I will not retrieve this offense. I will not bring this up to other people. I will not bring it up to you. I will not bring it up in my own thinking. We're burying the hatchet, as the saying goes. We're putting it in the past. That's my responsibility no matter what. That doesn't necessarily mean, however, that I'm going to lend my friend my new car. That involves repentance on his part. Right? A change in the direction of his life. And in this case, a change in the direction of his driving. If he's an alcoholic, he needs to get help. I'm not going to automatically lend him my car again, but I do need to be open to that possibility. 
if he repents, over the course of time, if repentance is genuine and the trust is rebuilt and the relationship is restored? I can't control what he does. But my part, the Christian calling, is to express that forgiveness. Express that forgiveness. Do not retrieve the offense. Why? Why must we do this? Because God in Christ forgave us. We forgive because we are forgiven. C.S. Lewis, in his collection of essays called The Weight of Glory, he has a short but powerful piece on forgiveness. Here's what Lewis says in closing. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand. By meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Will you pray with me? Father, these are some hard truths we consider together today. I imagine that each and every one of us in this room can think of some situation, some person that has caused us to be angry. Maybe even some situation, some person is causing us to harbor bitterness and refuse to forgive. My prayer this morning is that you would work in our hearts, softening, filling us with the joy of forgiveness. It is only with a great humility and a great joy in being forgiven that we are able to go out and forgive others. Fill us with that humility and that joy today. Help us to put off the old self and put on the new power of the Holy Spirit within us. And in the name of Jesus.